The first reading is from Ezekiel chapter 34. You can find it on page 704 of the Blue Standard Bibles or page 1344 of the Brown Large Print Bible. Ezekiel chapter 34 beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourself with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals. But you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered all over the mountains on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the law. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock, When he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. Please do uh, turn to that second reading. Meredith will bring that in a moment. So, John 9, continuing in our. uh, our series, John 9, uh, Blue Bibles 869, Brown Bibles 1664. Uh, as you turn there, I mean, isn't it confronting listening to Ezekiel 34 just read to us and its powerful critique of religious abuse and hypocrisy in the very week that one of the princes of the church, one of the most prominent church leaders in the world is convicted of child sexual abuse. Uh, The words are haunting in light of Cardinal Pell's uh, guilty conviction. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. Powerful words. And yes, I know there's going to be an appeal, but I think there is no point trying to preempt that. The outrage is real, the pain of victims, unimaginable. 
The day the news broke, uh, Tuesday, wasn't it? Uh, Twitter was ablaze, and I noticed a new hashtag uh, in a number of places, uh, simply, I'm out. And uh, the author, Kate Hunt, wrote on Twitter, I wonder how many Catholics will be like me and decide that today is the day they finally say, I'm out. Hashtag, I'm out. Hashtag, Pell. I get it. I can only reply that it makes sense. And I hope one day it doesn't make sense. But this a powerful reaction to religious hypocrisy, to hypocr hypocritical religion, it isn't just a secular humanist tradition. It is a biblical tradition to point out religious hypocrisy. Uh, I genuinely can't think of an ancient text that is as consistently and sharply critical of religious hypocrisy as the Bible is. And the climax of that critique of hypocrisy is not Ezekiel and the other great prophets, but in fact Jesus Christ, as we'll see in our passage uh, today. In John chapter 9... Uh, Jesus will heal a blind man again on the Sabbath and upset everyone that it's a Sabbath. And he will make the point that the Pharisees, in their cold, manipulative rules, are the blind ones. And then in chapter 10, we'll read that Jesus uh, basically says that the Pharisees are the false shepherds Ezekiel spoke of. And that he himself is the good shepherd, who would rather die than see harm come to his sheep. Uh, there's a lot of gospel reading today, uh, a lot, which has never hurt anyone, uh, sometimes not a lot of good actually. Uh, so we're going to dive straight in. Uh, we're going to focus on uh, chapter 9 in terms of my commentary anyway, and then we're going to end with a long reading from chapter 10. I want to give the last word to the good shepherd himself uh, and just let those words ring in our ears. So let's just pick up from chapter 9. Thanks, Meredith. John, John chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went 
and washed and then could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. Thank you. First then, a fun bit of history. Uh, Back in chapter 5, do you remember, John mentioned a pool. He said it was the pool of Bethesda near the Sheep Gate. You know the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem? Uh, And it's really weird design. It has five covered colonnades. It's quite an unusual description of a pool. But the thing is, 50 years of archaeology had not uncovered such a pool near the Sheep Gate of Jerusalem. Uh, And so some scholars actually argued that it was a fictive element, that John was just sort of embellishing it to make it sound like he'd been there. Uh, Some were a little more kind and said, no, maybe it's a metaphor. Maybe the five rows of columns actually refers to the five books of Moses, and it's just a metaphor, a symbol. Uh, And then in 1962, they dug slightly to the left and found, a little deeper than they dug before, a five-colonnaded pool exactly where John said it was, with the absolutely unique design of uh, five rows of columns across the pool. You'd think that uh, scholars would learn their lesson, but a similar story happens with our pool here in John chapter 9, the pool of Siloam. We have always known where Siloam is. It's now the Arab village of uh, Silwan in South Jerusalem. Uh, pleasant enough place, and they dug all around Silwan, like a hundred years of archaeology, and only found a fourth century pool. That's three centuries after Jesus, so it can't be that pool. And again, scholars went into print, arguing it was a fictitious element to make it look like John had been there, and some more kind scholars said, maybe it's just a metaphor. I mean, after all, Jesus sent a blind man there, and Siloam means to send, so uh, it's a It's a metaphor. And then in June 2004, which in history terms is just the other day, uh, during some sewerage works in Jerusalem, they uncovered Herodian steps, which date it to the first century, and they have found the largest Jewish bathing pool yet found, smack bang in the middle, just a little bit deeper, of Siloam. It is, without doubt, the pool where this uh, scene is set. Can you imagine being one of those uh, scholars who had gone into print uh, saying it was just a fictive element? I think you'd go around libraries and put your book at the back or something like that. Well, secondly, and perhaps a little more substantially, what on earth is the mud making about? Jesus spits on the ground, makes dirt into mud and sticks it on the guy's eyes. Uh, Verse 6. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eye. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And then did you notice the detail is repeated in verse 10? Uh, How then, the Pharisees asked, were your eyes opened? He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. And then just in case you'd missed those two references, there are two more references uh, down in verse 14. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Hmm, tuck that away in your head. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received sight. He put mud on my eyes. Fourth reference, he replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Hmm, so what's going on here? Some have tried to connect it with um, ancient magic. Ancient magic did 
tend to uh, use natural elements, combine them, and uh, turn it into potions that we're healing. The problem is uh, this, this doesn't really fit the pattern that we find in the Gospels. Jesus normally just says a word and someone's healed, or he touches and they're healed. This is the only time he actually goes to the trouble of making mud and then sticking it uh, on the guy's eyes. And it's repeated four times. So we're meant to sort of slow down and have a look at what this could possibly mean. By making mud, Jesus is deliberately breaking one of the Pharisaic rules about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. And he's doing it to expose their hypocrisy. Now, we already know from chapter 5 and chapter 7, Jesus is in trouble simply for healing on the Sabbath, because that was considered work, just speaking a healing. All right? And Jesus argues back then, you might remember, that it's ridiculous to say you can't heal on the Sabbath. If the Sabbath is God's gift, blessing to humanity, it makes no sense that you can't also bless and heal other people on the Sabbath. Well, what we see here in chapter 9 is an intensification of that same theme. He is challenging the Pharisees' rules in a more active way. The reason Jesus makes mud out of spit and dirt, and the reason it's repeated four times, is that Jesus is adding to the work of healing another activity that is independent of healing regarded as work on the Sabbath according to ancient Pharisaic rules. As bizarre as it perhaps sounds to us, the list of forbidden activities on the Sabbath actually includes mud-making. In two separate rulings. I've told you before that the rules of the Pharisees are codified, and you can read them for yourself, and in the chapter called Shabbat, in chapters 7 and 8, the rules for what is work on the Sabbath, what is forbidden on the Sabbath, are laid out in incredible uh, detail. And uh, there's a list of what are called generative activities that are forbidden. There are 39 generative activities that are also forbidden. Generative activities are where you add one thing to another to make a new thing. And because it makes a new thing... It generates work. And so uh, among the 39 generative activities that are forbidden on the Sabbath are, and I quote, uh, the generative categories of acts of labor prohibited on the Sabbath are 40 less 1, 39. He who bakes, sifts, weaves two threads, because two threads when woven make one thread, so it's a generative activity. Writes two letters. This doesn't mean, you know, one to my mum and one to my uncle. Uh, it means two letters. Aleph, bet, A, B. You've made a word. You've generated a word through just two letters. So it's forbidden. Uh, lights a fire. Puts out a fire. And by the way, uh, this is the reason um, Orthodox Jewish people today will not turn on a light switch on the Sabbath. Because you are literally lighting a fire. And turning it off is to put out a fire. Ties unties, and here it is, needs, K-N-E-A-D-S, which is strictly defined as uh, putting a dry powder to any liquid and mushing them together. That is literally what kneading is. Whether it's kneading to make clay, kneading to make bread, any kneading 
is forbidden. And mixing saliva with dirt to make mud is kneading. But there's a second ruling that also uh, forbids what Jesus did on the Sabbath. Uh, In the next chapter of uh, Mishnah Shabbat, uh, chapter 8, we read, Prohibited on the Sabbath is using earth or dirt to make clay even enough for a seal of a letter. Uh, They would make seals of letters simply by taking dirt, uh, mixing it with a liquid, and sticking it on the back to just hold it down for a little bit, right? Understandable. And even if you make the size of a seal of a letter, which is about the the size of one eyeball, you've broken the Sabbath. And Jesus did two of those and stuck them on the guy's eyes. He has added to the work of healing both kneading and clay making. Now, it's important to realize Jesus isn't just a gadfly. It's not like he just likes getting up religious leaders' noses. I know that really sits, the, sits well with the Australian mindset, right? Go, Jesus, right? Stick it up them. It's way more than just, you know, Jesus, the rebel. For him, these Sabbath rules are a profound departure from the will of God. If you can take the blessing of God's rest for humanity and turn it into an intricate burden by which you judge and exclude others, you are a million miles from God, from the grace of God. These Sabbath controversies in all four Gospels, by the way, are not just of historical interest. They take us to the very heart of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They bring us the very light of God and reveal Jesus to be the light of the world, which is how verse 5 puts it. Why? Because God wants to mend, forgive, and restore. Jesus taught that. He died to achieve that. He is the good shepherd. But religion often breaks, condemns, and diminishes other human beings. Which is why Jesus then says, you Pharisees are blind to the way of God. You think you see with clarity and precision. You can't see anything. And so let's now hear from verse 13. Continuing from verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he now can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, 
and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening their eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Thank you. Two quick things from this passage as well. It's a cool technique, isn't it? Making my point three, uh, number one. Yeah, the tricks I've learnt after nine years. The Pharisees conduct uh, an informal trial, uh, which is not a Sanhedrin, not a full-blown legal trial like Jesus will face uh, when he is, uh, he is executed. This is just a bunch of theological know-it-alls getting together to get to the bottom of what Jesus has really done. And they really want to know what he has done. In verse 26, they, you know, they ask, what did he do to you? How did he open his eye, your eyes? And yet, um, you've, they've already been told twice. They're still trying to drill down and confirm their worst suspicions. Jesus has not only healed, he's kneaded and made clay. Two times the amount that is permitted on the Sabbath. Part of the investigation, though, involves uh, the parents. Um, The man is of age, as the parents are quick to point out. But the thing is, they just want to verify, A, that he was their son, B, that he was really, really born uh, blind. And they say, yep, he's our son. Uh, Yes, he was born blind, but about this healing, we know nothing. We know nothing. Uh, 
Think about this. Instead of rejoicing in what's happened to their son and giving honour where honour is due, they're worried. Don't ask us. We've got nothing to do with this. And then John, the author, uh, tells us why they take this approach. Verse 22 is pretty clear. John's little aside. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Now, the Pharisee faction dominated the synagogues. We know that from plenty of evidence. And we also know they had the power of excommunication because we have evidence of Pharisees excommunicating people from synagogues from at least 65 BC. So this is a practice well established. And it seems like they had made a ruling that anyone who's whispering about Jesus being the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And the parents were frightened. They may have wanted to honor God and Jesus, but they were more worried about rejection. Contrast that indecision of the parents with the confidence of the blind man now healed down in verse 26. I love this. I feel like I'd want to get to know this guy. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have already told you and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Isn't that cheeky? Uh, They respond very negatively to the point of verse 34. To this they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And threw him out, probably of the synagogue as well as their little trial. I suspect John is making a point with this little aside about the motives of the parents. He's deliberately contrasting the bold freedom of the blind man with the indecision and fear of the parents. Because we've seen this before. John famously highlights the ambiguity of people's responses. I've pointed this out many times. Their mixed motives, their lame excuses. And I think we are meant to ask ourselves a question like this. Are we more worried about social rejection than honoring the Lord? Are we more worried about social rejection than honoring the Lord. Parents certainly were. Does our indecision or our unwillingness to say boo for Christ in public really stem from not wanting to be put out of some social setting we value, being out of step with family or friends or the golf club, university for some of you, the workplace? And I'm sure with the conviction of Cardinal Pell Many of us are going to feel like we just want to hide in the shadows and not say anything. But I would say, actually, the reverse ought to be true. We ought to be more public with our sense of sorrow and shame and compassion to victims and more insistent that the one we follow would rather lay down his own life than see any of his sheep lost. But even worse than the parents' indecision, secondly, is the blindness of the Pharisees. John sets up another contrast, not just between the son and his parents. There's another powerful contrast between what the blind man sees, literally and 
metaphorically, and what the Pharisees won't see, spiritually speaking. First, the blind man quotes the hymn Amazing Grace. It was clever of him, 1700 years early. Verse 25, uh, one thing I know, he says to the Pharisees, uh, I was blind, but now I see. Right? Maybe that's where John Newton got it from, I don't know. But this physical move from blindness to sight, all right, has its spiritual counterpart in verse 35, where the man gains spiritual insight as well as sight sight. Verse 35, Jesus heard that he'd been thrown out and like a good shepherd went and found him. He said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. I love this. After receiving his physical sight from Jesus, he'll believe any insight Jesus offers, as you would. Anything you say, Lord, I'm taking that. And Jesus said, verse 37, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And for the first time in John's gospel, we read the words, and he worshipped. There is none of uh, John's famous ambiguity theme here. This is full-on trust, full-on worship of Jesus. And therefore, the contrast with the Pharisees' reaction could hardly be greater down in verse 39, 39. It's like Jesus, having spoken to the blind man, sort of turns, lifts his voice and speaks more publicly. For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. And then notice chapter 10 just continues. It's the same speech. Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. And so begins the climactic good shepherd speech, which we'll hear in a moment. The Pharisees claimed that their ethical and ritual Precision gave them more clarity about God's will. And Jesus says, actually, it blinds you to God's will. They're dividing up, kneading, tying, letter writing, turning on a lamp, turning off a lamp. You think you see with clarity, but you are blind to the way of God. And more than that, their perverse claim to actually see better than anyone else makes them more guilty than if they were completely ignorant. These guys should have known the grace and truth of the Old Testament. But they turned the law of God into a burden and a means of judging and excluding other people. They harmed the sheep in their care through their rules. They are thieves and robbers, Jesus said, not true shepherds. It's strong stuff. 
And I reckon Jesus' critique of rule-bound religion is as relevant today as it ever has been. I know I've told you before about that young man I met in uh, Port Macquarie who came up to me after a speech uh, at his school. And because my speech was sort of related to Christianity, he came and asked me if God approved of him. And I said, well, what are your own thoughts? And he said, I've been trying to work out if God approves of me, and I've got this book. And he pulled out an exercise book in which he had drawn accounting columns uh, down the left-hand column, rules, virtues that he thought God would appreciate, you know, patience, kindness, etc. And then across the top, uh, the days of the week. And he had given himself a score out of 10 for every rule, for every day of the week, for pages and pages and pages. And his question was, do you think God approves? I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Here is this kid, and apparently a teacher had led him down this track. His own scores condemned him. <laughs> there were some eights, but they were mostly three to fives. So I did, of course, what you would do. I explained that the whole Christian message is about delivering you from this rule-based approach to God. You can see this crushes you. Jesus came to die for you, that all of those black marks against your name fell on him. He's the good shepherd. I didn't use those exact words, but the thought is the same. The good shepherd who laid down his life for you, he doesn't want you to carry this burden. He died. I'll never forget this boy with a tear in his eye throwing this exercise book in the bin. A rule-based approach to the faith will blind you to God's grace. Kill you. Crush you. And when leaders do that to people, it is especially despicable. And so I want to conclude, not in the normal way I'd conclude with my own challenge, but by Jesus' own conclusion and challenge in chapter 10, the Good Shepherd passage, in which we will hear him castigate the Pharisees in the very language of Ezekiel 34 read to us earlier. Do you remember those words read at the outset? This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. Well, that's what Jesus is doing in chapter 9. I will rescue my flock from their mouths, which is what he's doing with the blind man. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. Do you notice in this prophecy who it is that ends up being the shepherd? Who is it? It's the Lord God Almighty. This lays a tremendous emphasis on the words we're about to hear where Jesus says, you false shepherds are rejected. I am the shepherd. And he goes even beyond the expectation of this prophecy because he doesn't just come to search 
and bind up the wounds and care for the sheep. He comes to lay down his life for the sheep. That we might be free of our sins, yes, and even of religion. So, I give the last word to the Good Shepherd. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? 